I had to steal a guitar back from airport employees who were stealing it from me. And I had to do that by sneaking out on the tarmac through a back door. It was just pre 9-11 coming back from a gig in Portugal. 9-11 really changed things. Prior to that, guitars really would disappear. I know Brazil lost guitars, at least one. I know Brian Setzer lost guitars. And in the 90s, things were sort of vanishing. So this was in early 2000 or late 99, I can't remember. But yeah, these airport employees kept telling me that it wasn't there. And finally, I peeked through a window and the guy was telling me it wasn't there and telling me to go home at whatever, two, three in the morning. And I looked and my guitar was right next to him. So I waited until I watched him walk away. And then I slid under a garage door that led out to the tarmac from the luggage area, from the luggage carousels, and I stole my guitar back. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Hot Jazz Network podcast. I'm your host, George Cole, and today we have a very special guest, one of the most important guitar players working in the United States today, the one and only Matt Munisteri. He plays guitar for Catherine Russell. He's an expert on all things vintage jazz, and he also plays the banjo. He's coming out of Brooklyn, New York City, and we are going to speak to him right now. Let's take a ride out to Riverside Drive To a place before your mom and dad were alive We'll roll down the block Every superhero has an origin story. Let's go back to the beginning of yours. Where, where were you born? I was born in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, that's something I don't generally confess, but I was there for the first probably eight weeks of my life. And then I moved to uh, Brooklyn, where my dad had grown up and was raised there. And what was your father's name and what did he do? Arthur Munisteri. He was a, a lawyer and amateur musician and a lifelong music lover. There was a lot of music in the family. My grandmother and my aunt and one of my uncles is a very serious musician, but they all played and my dad played. And Sunday dinners were usually over at my grandparents in Brooklyn. After dinner would be make music time. And so my grandmother would play piano or my aunt would play piano. My aunt also played accordion. I had a great uncle who played an old Gibson L7. He didn't speak English and he just did Sicilian folk music. But that's where I got my first real guitar when I was 12. My, my great aunt gifted that to me. Do, do you still have that instrument? Yeah, that was my main guitar from, that's a 48 L7 that she bought for his 50th birthday in 1948. And I, I still have it. It's still a great guitar. And it was my main guitar from 12 until 36, maybe. Huh. Who has the accordion? That's probably lost to the annals of time. I don't know. It is. The accordion is gone, as are most of that generation of my family. But accordions don't last. I know that because I work with so many accordion players. Do you know this? The bellows go, they're just paper. Well, that's my first instrument. I, oh, really? When I was a kid, Lawrence Welk reruns. That's the reason I got into music. And I think the chord wow. is such a wonderful instrument for young yeah, people. Yeah, I do too. You're playing the melody, playing the chords, you're pumping the thing. You're, it's a little mini orchestra. It's, yeah, believe it's, me, I never took it that far. And my idol was Myron Ford on the Lawrence Welk show. I just, I just loved it. And when I see it now, I realize the show may be, appear awfully corny to some people. 
But that's what got me into music. So I'll always be very grateful, believe it or not. Yeah, accordion is, is fantastic. I started my first band as a leader with the accordionist Will Holshauser after seeing him on a subway platform. And I'd been looking for an accordion player. It's too bad that you didn't stick with it. It could have been playing music, but <laughs> I want to get one. <laughs> I, I saw Will playing. I got off the train, I think, and talked to him and then got on the next train to get just to get his number and stuff. Yeah, it's a fantastic instrument. And yeah, like you said, you're doing bass, you're doing treble, you're doing the chords, and you're also getting a calisthenic workout. I'm sorry the accordion's gone, though. That would be a nice heirloom to have, but at least you have the guitars. Yeah, accordions, there was a while there where people were constantly finding accordions at yard sales and stuff and dropping them off with me. And eventually, like, only one accordion can be too many accordions if you don't play accordion. People started dropping them off periodically, and it just got a bit much. You know the old that. joke. You know the old joke. I know some, the banjo jokes. You throw the banjo in the dumpster. That's what, you know, perfect pitch. What's perfect pitch? You throw the banjo in the dumpster and it hits another banjo. Or it hits the, and it lands on an accordion. You throw an accordion on a, in a dumpster and it lands on a banjo is how I've heard it. Then there's also Will Holshauser <laughs> told me that he came home. He was like, oh, I had a terrible morning. I can't believe this happened. I got home from a gig at four in the morning. I parked on a block, like the only parking space I could find. It's not a great block. And I woke up at eight and I was like, oh my God, I left my accordion in the car, in the car. And he said, I started walking back to the car and sure enough, I was a half a block away and I saw glass all over the sidewalk and I got, I ran up and sure enough, someone had thrown another accordion in the car. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I threw the banjo back from Port Townsend. Where apparently the banjo is worth over $200,000. And it was super heavy, and I'm not a banjo guy, but I found out that is a very expensive instrument. It makes me nervous to to travel with these really expensive instruments. It always has. You brought it from Port Townsend back to the Bay Area? Yes. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure it was a top tension original five string. Yeah, those are great. Yeah, I, I've had problems. I've had Homeland Security called oh. on me before and um, then the pilots walked by and they say, what's the problem? And I said, oh, they won't let me take my, they're going to make me gate check this really expensive guitar that I'm borrowing to play at Carnegie Hall. And they said, oh, why don't you just leave it in the cockpit with us? Because pilots are like dudes. They're like, God, hey, what kind of guitar is that? Is that a Martin? I said, right. no, you've never heard of it. It's made by John Mello, but it's just, it's always a drama with me. I guess I should get a Hoffy case. You probably have a Hoffy or Carlton case for I have, instrument. I have a, I have a couple of Carltons, yeah, that I've used since the mid nineties. I had to steal a guitar back from airport employees who were stealing it from me. And I had to do that by sneaking out on the tarmac through a back door. It's a long story. I'm not going to get into the whole thing. And it was just pre 9-11 coming back from a gig in Portugal. 9-11 really changed things. Prior to that, guitars really would disappear. I know Brazil lost guitars, at least one. I know Brian Setzer lost guitars and in the nineties, things were vanishing. So this was in early 2000 or late 99. I can't remember, but yeah, these airport employees kept telling me that it wasn't there. And finally I peeked through a window and the guy was telling me it wasn't there and telling me to go home at whatever, two, three in the morning. And I looked and my guitar was right next to him. So I waited until I watched him walk away. And then I slid under a garage door that led out to the tarmac from the luggage area, from the luggage carousels, and I stole my guitar back. 
That is a great story. When you do a book, that's got to that's got to be in the book. Nobody prepares you when you're very young, standing in front of the mirror, pretending you're a rock star. Nobody tells you that you're going to have to be doing stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, nowadays, it would really get you in trouble. Back then, it would have just gotten you, I don't know, beat up or something. Back to the to the origin story. So your mom and where was she from? Was she from Italy or? I... No, my, my dad's parents were from Sicily, but my father was born here and my mom is American, Irish-American, from actually the Bay Area, where her family goes back a couple of generations. Wow. In Oakland, yeah. You know, my dad's family was all in Brooklyn, and there was a lot of amateur musicians and a sort of mix of Italian songs and light opera and show tunes and stuff being played by family members after dinner. And like I said, the, the, the 48L7 that I got when I was 12 my Uncle John used to play that and just sing Sicilian folk songs. And honestly, I wasn't a fan when I was a little kid. He died when I was probably six. Wow. Because I remember him and I remember the songs, but not a lot. But what a privilege, what a treasure. What a, I'm so envious of your childhood with all that. People playing and gathering and the instruments. And gosh, that's, you're very fortunate to have had that. Well, stringed instruments, mandolin, guitar, violin are so integral to Italian folk traditions. That's the main reason why all those players in the 20s and 30s, so many of the guitar players were Italian-American. That was in their families and they grew up hearing and playing the mandolin. Do you know any of the music by like Giovanni Giovale or Giovanni Vicari? Early 30s is when Giovale, I think, was recording. There's a great record that Rounder put out maybe 25 years ago called Italian String Virtuosi that Butch Baldessari helped put together. It's great because you hear like the origins of probably where someone like Eddie Lang was coming from and so it's, it's into like the sort of technique that he was exposed to as a really young person. Nick Lucas, Nicola Lucanese, yeah, from Newark. Is it heavy on the, the rest stroke picking? Nick Lucas was really rest stroke and really downstroke player. Uh, I don't think that Lang was quite that much. I think he had a sort of more sophisticated style up and down. Mandolin players were certainly doing up and down. Have you talked to Tom Marion? Do you know him at all? Tom is in LA or nearby and grew up in an Italian-American family where he had to learn mandolin and guitar, I think. It was a big deal in his family. Like You had to learn how to do this stuff. And he's a fantastic player who really is like this link to Italian-American traditions, Italian string traditions, plectral traditions, and in contemporary... Uh, American jazz, contemporary 30s sort of jazz. And of course, Craig Ventresco is another one who's who knows Tom pretty well. And Craig's just absolutely fantastic and really lovely person. I've been a friend for over 20 years. And he knows those older styles of music and he's deep into it. Oh, Craig's fantastic. Yeah. You know, you never stop learning. You always hear about, for me, I always hear about new people. Yeah. And in, in new new songs, uh, I had a student the other day uh, asked me to teach him the the Cole Porter song "Get Out of Town." Oh yeah, and I was not familiar with that. So I'm a huge Cole Porter nut, but it's but you can hear the Cole Porterness in the composition. It's amazing. That is a great tune. I know that tune because my mom was a big. You mentioned Ella Fitzgerald earlier, and she was a big not so much jazz. She loved jazz, but it was more just American songbook stuff. She had the Ella. Cole Porter songbook that had that on there. She was a great natural musician, actually. 
who could play whatever came into her mind as she sat down on the piano, but she was not trained in any way. When you're growing up, what were the records that were being played or was it all in-person musical gatherings or what piqued your interest? It was two things. My dad was very into classical and folk music and I didn't really get that into classical, but he would have us uh, tag along sometimes to like folk festivals and and my mom was into more popular music of the 70s. Paul Simon, she uh, brought home Randy Newman records very early on in Randy Newman's career. And that was actually huge for me. I was probably in like fourth grade. If you grow up listening to, if the music that's surrounding you on the radio and just walking down the street is like disco or pop 70s rock, you're not hearing a lot of harmonic you're not hearing all this detailed, moving inner harmonies that anyone that grew up in the 30s and 40s, and even in the 50s, I think would have been hearing as a matter of course. Randy Newman, his music had all that stuff. And I have to say, anytime there was a tune that had something that like a modulation or some sort of like internal movement in the harmonies, it was always a thrill. My brother and I would both listen to the radio just for the moments to hear that kind of stuff. Wow. When I was in fourth grade then, or third grade, Dueling Banjos was top 10 hit. I don't know what it reached, but I had a little AM transistor radio. And suddenly in Brooklyn, I'm hearing like real bluegrass banjo. And that kind of just blew my mind. And I started begging my parents to find me a banjo teacher, which they finally did. That was an amazing period. And I will postulate that music has never sounded better to me than it sounded on my little transistor radio. Oh, yeah. No, it's incredible. Just discovery, right? Like things just coming into your path that you'd never heard and the randomness and yet the like feeling of it's meant to be. I'm hearing this incredible thing. There was such a variety of music back then. And and now at, at the gym, I hear today what passes for, for popular music. And if it sounds like it was made on a computer with some auto-tune, it just, it leaves me cold. I had, I have no connection to it. And I, I don't think it's necessarily because of my advanced stage. I think that it's just on a musical level. There's not enough music in the music for me to what you're talking about with Randy Newman. There, there's movement. There's things going on. You hear the, the, just a bass note against the chord or what, whatever. But, um, no, it's, I don't want to sound like the hundred year old man that hates everything, but gosh darn it. It's interesting. I feel like. It is important to know what you don't like, just as it's important to know what you love and what That's you right. like. And it's also important to, to let yourself evolve and let yourself discover new things. But that has been, because I'm basically a self-taught musician, that's been the most important thing to me is that I follow whatever direction I'm following because I'm obsessed with it and interested in it. And I'm pushing away all this other stuff that I don't really like. And what happens often is five, 10 years down the line, you're like, oh, wow, I missed this other stuff. This is amazing. And then you go down some other paths. But I wasn't what I wasn't ever someone that was good at doing the things that a teacher told me to do. If I was told, like, learn this or practice this, I just, I just couldn't do it. A lot of the jazz clubs here in San Francisco which don't pay very much money. Uh, I'm just not interested, but I see a lot of music students. Yeah, and I don't want to put anybody down because I've been a music teacher for a long time and I have, I've 
liked all kinds of music and everybody's trying to make a living. But I see a lot of young guys wearing suits that le- learn Donna Lee and at, at Berkeley or something. And it's just, I don't know, the music doesn't connect with me. Honestly, like I, I love bebop. I also love a lot of really modern stuff. I've listened to a lot of different stuff. And I'm sure you have too. It was like in the late nineties or no mid nineties. I heard about this band that I was just playing like kind of bebop gigs around town and just, I, you know, I started playing jazz really very late and was super insecure because everyone else had been to school and had a lot, just had everything together and I was older. And so I didn't even start going out to jam sessions and trying to play at all until I was like 27. It was late. And, and there were all these players that just played the bop repertoire, which I, I loved. I was just trying to learn like Charlie Parker and, Clifford Brown and Sonny Rollins, all of whom are just the greatest. But I heard about this band and the bass player in the band was like, yeah, they do this stuff. I don't know what it is. I guess it's like New Orleans jazz. I don't know, blah, blah. And I was like, that sounds exactly like what I wanted to. Because I'd been listening. I'd always had, first of all, I did hear the Hot Club of France when I was still a teenager. And also BGO a radio station in New York was playing music by Scott Hamilton sometimes during the broadcasts. And that really, I was like, wow, there's someone alive nowadays that's doing this stuff that I thought no one did anymore. And those records featured either Howard Alden or Chris Flory on guitar. And Howard's playing in particular sort of amazed me because he was playing, he didn't have any reverb. He was just playing like a clean sound and it was just swinging lines. And uh, anyway, so... I wound up connecting with this band that did both New Orleans tread and then into like kind of thirties swing and a fair amount of blues and even forties jump blues and even the occasional country tune, basically like what used to just be like bar band material, but played all by jazz players. And that was where the first time I really felt like, Oh, I feel at home. I've always been a, a seeker and it sounds that you're that way too. You've always been. Maybe it just happens. Maybe you're not even looking for it, but you hear something and that inspires me. That's the direction that I want to go. In New York, there are a lot of really great musicians nowadays, young musicians playing great swing and trad and bop and beyond. Not that many that can really go beyond and stick play the old stuff, but a handful. And it's incredibly inspiring and and it makes going to work really fun. It doesn't seem like there's ever a shortage of these players around nowadays it's incredible and where do they all come from it's interesting i think that they come from all over but i think that there's a it's in it's been amazing to me how many people have been able to like how many people have come from programs music programs that have been put together by really one or two just believers in the music so, for instance, there's a great musician here who's a good friend that plays with a band that I'm in a lot, Scott Robinson, who's an extraordinary multi-breed and multi-brass, everything sort of musician. And he's probably the best example I can think of someone who spans the entire 20th century and beyond of music. Wow. Um, and Scott's brother is a very serious musician also, but his focus is more on older stuff. And he's in the D.C. area. And there have been a lot of players, really good players, who've come to New York through Scott's brother's educational programs. And I don't know the extent of it, 
but his name is David Robinson. One person, one teacher can have such a huge impact. Whoever was teaching out at Santa Cruz in the 80s and 90s in like the high school jazz program produced a whole lot of great musicians. And the same thing like Berkeley in the 70s and 80s. The amount of musicians that I know in town that have come through those towns and are like that age to have been exposed to this stuff in those years. To me, it's amazing. Berkeley, California. It's quite a melting pot here in, in the Bay Area. And it's uh, there, there's so many people, a lot of gypsy jazz, a lot of people that are acolytes of that right. style of music. And I've played with people and they just want to sit there and watch my right hand. Yeah, it's such a specific improvising language or it can be. And the technique is so linked to the improvising language. The way the phrases happen is largely a result of the technique, that phrasing. But most of the people that I know that play that style really well also change up their right hand if they're going to different guitars. And I've certainly played really all downstrokes and then mostly a rest stroke style. My, my own playing has changed so much over the last 25 years. That's how it was probably in 2000, 2001, two, like all downstrokes. I don't know how you got into it, but with me, the first record that I heard by a contemporary artist was a record by Angelo DeBar. Angelo DeBar. Um, what a right hand. I have a story about him. But anyway, let me hear what you were going to say. So Angelo DeBar did this record that was both like um, Django repertoire, Hot Club of France repertoire, but also like traditional gypsy repertoire. And it just flipped me out. A friend loaned me the record. And this was in like probably 99, 98 even. Then a girlfriend of mine around 2000 had a computer something like I'd never even seen. And she she told me about the internet. So she was like, oh, you can find out all kinds of things. And I wound up trying to find out things about Angelo DeBar. And I saw that he was performing in old Quebec in Canada. And I was playing with Vince Giordano at this point. And, and I saw that he was playing two or three nights in old Quebec. I just literally on a moment's notice decided I was going to go up. And I remember we were playing a gig that kept on going into overtime. I was getting more and more stressed because I wanted to make this midnight bus from Port Authority in New York City in Manhattan and get to, to Old Quebec. And I was able to just get there in time, racing in my tuxedo. I got on the bus. I got to Quebec. I had no place to stay. I had, I didn't know. This is, I didn't even have a credit card at this point or anything. I found a little hotel near where he was playing. I went for two or three nights. I don't remember which it was. I got to the bar every night, like two hours early, so I could sit right next to him and watch his right hand. This was in 2000. It was incredible. I sat there and I recorded a bunch of it. I have some of the stuff on a DAT tape. First of all, it was just unbelievable to listen to him create music like that. But it also sort of reinforced what I'd suspected. A lot of the things that I'd been copying from the records, from Django records that I was like, I think this is a downstroke. I think this is an up. I don't know. I was on the right track. So I'd watch him play three sets every night. And then I'd go back to my hotel room and practice till like six or so when it was still like fresh in my mind. That trip to old Quebec really was a big watershed moment for me. Wow. That is an amazing story. Do you have a dat player? Yeah, somewhere. I don't know if it will even turn on. I have one and I haven't turned it on in years, but I was going to say, if you wanted to do something with that dad tape, I actually have a dad player. 
But so my Angelo Debar story is nowhere near as good as yours. But so I was playing at the, um, one of these Django festivals, one of the early ones around here at, in Redwood City. And um, I wandered back to the dressing room area and I heard what, who I later found out was Angelo Debar playing guitar. And it sounded like he was playing the most expensive, you know, $100,000 guitar through a, through a half million dollar amp. And it was so loud and each note was so perfect in, in the, the precision and the clarity and the, the volume. He was just playing an acoustic guitar, just, just rehearsing the guys that were going to play with him in a few minutes on stage. Being around that, it just, it was, I was shocked that, and then when I saw him perform, the same thing. And then I took a cl class with him and, and apparently he can speak pretty oh, good cool. English, um, but, but I didn't really learn anything from the class other than being in the presence of that kind of technique. And yeah, there's really nobody quite like him. And I know he uses the big heavy pick and it's all just so all the, the Django crack, the way he holds the pick, where he places it on his thumb and the type of pick he uses in his right hand. And this beautiful left hand just right behind the fret every note. It's really extraordinary. Yeah. You know, it's just what made him like that, I do not know. Yeah. He's really, for me, just the pinnacle of... The pinnacle, yeah. Yeah, of like contemporary meets really ancient. That's the difference between a lot of American players and a lot of contemporary players that play incredible music on the guitar. But whenever I've been around an actual gypsy guitarist who's been doing this style since he was like three years old or something. Yep. Um, the difference in projection and attack is just staggering. Yes, that is exactly it. And I've never seen, and I, I'm not going to disparage anybody, but I saw some of the other people on the festival that were highly, highly regarded. And it was nothing like that. What got me into the, the style in general is I saw the great Borelli Legren at Yoshi's almost 20 years ago. And oh, I had never seen, I'd never seen anybody do anything like that. I'm sitting there with, with my friend and uh, I'm wondering and weeping and I'm just going, oh, believe this. And the next day I went and sold my entire arsenal of solid body, like my 53 Tele, my 56 Stratocaster. Oh my all, God. All my lifelong collection of pedals, all of my amps. I had one of every I was doing a bunch of sessions for a while, and I had a Marshall, a Vox, some Fenders, the different food groups of amplification. And so I bought Selmer 103. I don't think you can see it. Sheila, is there any way for us to move the camera where Matt can see this painting? I, and to our listeners, sorry, there, there's, a paint, there's a painting of Selmer 103 that okay. I bought. And my, my friend commissioned that painting of that wonderful guitar, which I've since sold and now I have other instruments. But yeah, I just dove headlong into this thing. I didn't know. Wow, what, I didn't realize that. That's crazy, amazing. It's a crazy story. And I didn't know what kind of picks or strings or any or anything about it. I just said about teaching myself. There are some professional working musicians that are doing great that have never taken a guitar lesson. Everything they learned was off of YouTube. Yeah, it's amazing. It's sped up learning in so many ways. It's incredible. It's interesting. You say like when we were trying to figure this stuff out in like the 90s or something and listening and there's no video, there's no nothing. There's no internet that I certainly had access to. But in the mid 90s, I started touring with this band that I joined. And one of the things that I really look forward to about coming to the Bay Area, going to the Southwest, going to LA, was that there were all these displaced Okies and Texans who had moved there in the 30s and 40s and taken their musical preferences, 
with them. And I'd been into Western Swing again since I was a kid. So suddenly I was able to find Western Swing records. People don't understand like by the mid 90s, CDs haven't really, the reissue thing isn't really going on in a big way. Records are dying. No one's reissuing any of this stuff on vinyl. Record stores are also starting to disappear because records are being phased out. All this stuff is going on like the whole second half of the 90s. So traveling was the way that you would learn this stuff. Getting on a bus or finding yourself in some new town on the road with a band, you'd make sure you scouted the used record stores or the junk shops or whatever to find stuff. Now, it's funny here where I live in the East Bay, grew up in a little town called Richmond. There was a lot of Okies and Arkies that came out here. And just like you're saying, they brought their music with them. I actually grew up playing playing country music. I'm very grateful for that. I had to learn so many songs. And it's easy for a guitar player, maybe if you're the bass player and you don't know what the next chord is, you got a problem. But for a guitar player to learn a bunch of songs on the, on the bandstand, you hear right. the bass, oh, I think I know what to do. Western swing, the cross-pollination between the slide guitar and this, the Hawaii and the, in the United States. I know you know a lot about Western swing. Can you, is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners about your journey in Western swing? I didn't know that it wasn't jazz until I started sitting in with bands. Like I said, when I was 27, just going out to jazz jam sessions in New York. And I'd count behind people and I might have been playing the right changes, but I was playing them Eldon Shamblin style, like boom chick and was told to sit down many times and had to learn more modern comping styles. But the way that I learned all that stuff was through a great guitarist, Russ Barenberg, when I was probably like 12 or 13, taking some lessons from him that were basically flat picking lessons, like learning fiddle tunes, which is so important and great in terms of training your ear and getting your technique together. But Russ was also very into Western swing at the time and was also, I think, under the spell a little bit of a guy that I got to know later on named Richard Lieberson. Richard was a guitarist, probably a little older than Russ, who lived in Manhattan, was a native New Yorker, and was part of this scene in New York of this bunch of musicians that all became heroes of mine when I was like 13, 14 years old. Andy Statman, Kenny Kozik, Tony Trishka, Marty Cutler, Matt Glazer. And I love hearing the names and it's really important for our, our listeners to hear, hear these names. We could just say this guy, that guy, but to, to give credit where credit is due. is one. Oh no, these, these players were fantastic. And to me, it was, it was unbelievable because I was really into bluegrass, right? I was playing bluegrass banjo. I wasn't even studying with Tony Trishka yet, but I was going to these concerts at the Loeb Student Center in Manhattan, which is in part of NYU, because this guy, Doug Tuckman, and again, this is an example of like how one person can just totally change a scene. The ripples can be felt. So Doug started bringing bluegrass musicians to play in New York. And it was like, a couple of times a month, at least, there'd be like bluegrass legends. I got to see David. I got to see Grisman. I got to see Bill Monroe. I got to see Lester Flatt. I got to see Don Reno, Mac Wiseman. The list goes on. Ralph Stanley, and like on and on. I got to see all these people when I was barely in the double digits. Often, the opening band would be a local band, and it was usually comprised of guys like Statman and Kenny Kozik and Trishka and Cutler and Mac Laser, Richie Schulberg 
who was just a, a presence in town and on the radio fiddle player known as Citizen Casca. But those guys were so free and so open to musical ideas, so connected to fun when they made music. Everything was exciting. Everything was fun. They were like cracking one another up and making one another's mouths hang a gap at the stuff that they were doing on the bandstands. That was contagious. And um, I thought that's what music was. I was like, this is what you do as an adult. And honestly, that was a very special thing that I was exposed to because that's not how most musicians, most professional musicians are more just, the truth is like following rules and, you know, making sure that people are comfortable on stage and blah, blah. There was a sort of like abandon that was in that scene that was incredible. So anyway, Russ Barenberg showed me these sort of Eldon chords, Eldon Shamblin, the great guitarist for Bob's yeah, yeah. band, that I think he either figured out on his own or learned from Richard Schulberg. Richard, I would go see play a lot and he would do like Charlie Christian sort of stuff. And the next minute is the kind of Eddie Lang sort of thing. Richard Lieberson, I'm sorry. And Richard was a great, a, a great guitarist who died way, way too young. I didn't get to know him well as an adult. We were in touch and we hung out a little bit. But he died of a heart attack, heart disease, really much too young, probably in the early aughts. I don't remember exactly when, maybe 2003 or two or something. Sorry to hear that. That's That was my exposure. And I would play, Russ Berenberg would have me practice this sort of Eldon Shamblin boom chick on those chords. You know, I've been doing it since I was a little kid. And I'd hear these guys play Bob Wills tunes. But there was only one Bob Wills record I was able to find when I was in high school, and that remained the only record I could find until near the end of college, I found one other record on vinyl. And then I didn't find any more Bob Wills until I hit the road in 95 with this band. And suddenly I'm in Los Angeles and I'm in San Francisco and I'm going to record stores and they've got all these used Bob Wills records that believe me, you just couldn't find in New York City. Have you ever heard of Spade Cooley? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Jimmy Luttrell, who I studied with briefly, um, he had a music store on Solano Avenue here. He taught the guys in Credence and sold them those blue custom amps with the sparkle kind of tuck and roll thing. And he um, played with Spade Cooley. He moved down to L.A. when he was very young and, and played with Spade Cooley. And I, I didn't know much about Spade Cooley, but there's a few videos. He had, he had a TV show. He had a great band. I don't feel that Western swing guitar, you can correct me on this and I won't feel bad about it all, that it hasn't been codified like some of these other styles of guitar. It's more of a vast open tundra or has it been codified? One reason for that is that it was such a niche genre that was so connected to a specific geography. And there were then relatively few guys compared with like other, other styles of jazz guitar there are relatively few players i think who were recording there there are a lot still and eldon's influence is certainly outsized and incredible it's interesting the california you think of that like boom chick walking bass notes along the chords probably the person nowadays who's it's his greatest carrying on that tradition is Whit smith in the hot club of cowtown Whit's really made that way of playing with little bass runs and all this sort of very uh, like a guitar style that embraces all the harmonic possibilities, playing like tenor lines and bass runs and chords all at the same time. Wit's really someone that does that stuff great. But it's, yeah, it's definitely music that was so connected with just a few different artists. And it also stayed in that one locale. 
the one guy that's interesting to me is George Barnes, who's been a hero of mine since I first read about him as a teenager and then found my first record I got. I found a record when I was 17 in a used record store that was him and Venuti. And the more I got into Barnes, especially once I was then even in my 30s, some of that music got reissued. And then with traveling, I was able to find more music. But it's really hard to find his music for quite a while. He's just one of the greatest. He's someone that I think has a lot of that Western swing element, but he's not coming from the West. You know, he grew up in Chicago. He was connected with country music and blues traditions. And that's the other thing about Western swing is I always say that Western swing is like some people think that Western swing is just jazz played wrong, but the truth is it's also blues played wrong and it's country music played wrong and it's Czech music played wrong and German music played wrong, Mexican music played wrong. Like everything's wrapped up in Western swing. That's for me the freeing thing as well that you really can go in any direction. And Barnes was someone who had all that stuff in his playing from the get-go. He had all that blues playing and he had all that Chicago traditional jazz background. He's an important player and he's a little, to me, he's a bit undersung. His daughter has a Facebook page that she runs, which is an homage to him. And also my old boss, David Grisman, has reissued some of George's um, work. Yeah. um, Yeah. He's a really important guitar player. To me, in the big picture of things, people know a lot more about, of course, Django, Eddie Lang, Charlie Christian. I want to talk a little bit about Eddie Lang, because I know you're a huge acolyte of his style and somebody that's keeping that alive. Eddie's coming out of the Italian folk tradition, partially, and then also American jazz. And there's something very special about his approach to the guitar compared to Nick Lucas. Eddie's the father of jazz guitar. Nick Lucas is the grandfather, but their styles are quite disparate. I don't hear a commonality really in their styles. Yeah, they're both players that I think learned in guitar, at least in family situations. So they probably are both connected to an Italian plectrum tradition. To me, it's really interesting that with the death of Eddie Lang, you were asking before, did Eddie Lang use a lot of upstrokes or downstrokes? With the death of Eddie Lang, probably the most important link that we would have in an Italian plectrum tradition in terms of technique Mm -hmm. disappeared because within a couple of years of Lang's death, the electric guitar came in and there was no one else like suddenly that had to produce that big acoustic sound in American jazz single note stuff. Suddenly like the technique changes to match the instrument, right? We don't really know how Lang did what he did, but I think he played up and down. I feel pretty certain about that. That's certainly in the Italian mandolin and banjo tradition. And there's still people that from the, their videos and stuff that you can see in the twenties and thirties and even some contemporary players who I think exemplify that. Tyler Jackson. Do you know this guy? I don't, I don't know the name, but I was just going to mention, fortunately, I'll be able to listen to this podcast and get some of the, the names from you. If you watch the Eddie Lang, Ruth Edding, Video, the one on the train. He yeah, is that it, great? It is so great. I, I need to study his technique more on that thing, but it, it just appears really refined. And on those Bing Crosby records, he's mixed really low. It's all about the voice. It's all about Bing's massive vocal. There's Eddie in the background playing a lot of fucking notes, but it's mixed low. He's away from the one microphone or whatever. 
I was surprised to discover at some point that some of the things that I thought was Lang was actually Snooze or Quinn with Bing. I forget what it was, maybe some like live stuff. What happened then was the microphone, right? Like the microphone, the electric microphone was the thing that made Bing able to happen because he wasn't a loud singer. He was a crooner. And it was the thing that made Lang able to happen because the guitar before that was the banjo because he didn't have this electric microphone that could amplify the guitar. You're interested in this, but many of my civilian friends, they have no interest or idea about any of this stuff because people think of me as, as a singer and I sing. But I say, I'm a microphone singer. What yeah. are you talking about? Everybody, I said, no, Caruso in, 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 the, in the town hall in, in Mexico, he, his voice filled the whole square. That, right. and, and the bluegrass singers sing really high with the, the Appalachian, the, that high thing. But the microphone singers, it's a much quieter thing. Yeah. It's a whole nother thing. The microphone changed the music technology. I mean, people would say the technology with Ableton and all that stuff is still changing music. But I'd lose interest. But with the talking about singing in microphones or Eddie Lang's guitar style and the microphone and the banjo being the predominant instrument. I mean, the guitar was nothing until Martin started changing the bracing and bronze string technology came along and guitars got louder and louder. And of course, when the electric guitar came along. That changed music forever because one guy could be louder than a whole band. Yeah, it changed music really forever. What amplification has done, the way we interact with music is, I honestly, I'll just say it, I think it's a disaster. Thank you. Thank I you. Think, it's going on record, folks. You no, know, I love the electric guitar. I really do. I play electric guitar. I love it. But things are so loud now and we've become so desensitized. People forget. Like, I'm always just amazed. People are like, wow, you're not amplified at all. And you're like, no, I'm just playing acoustic guitar. But you hear it fine. I did a recording session many years ago with the Lincoln Center Orchestra where the engineer kept telling me to plug in. And I kept telling him, like, I, I can't plug in. It's an acoustic guitar. And he was like, no, but just use the DI. And I was like, no, but there's nothing for me to plug in because it's an acoustic guitar. And this is a big deal engineer, right? Like, people forget that you can be more of an active listener. It's funny. I, I knew a woman a bunch of years ago who had an uncle, a great uncle that was a Los Angeles session musician. And also, I think in New York, he would play all these big supper clubs and all the stuff. And he had all these stories about playing for Al Capone and all this stuff. And oh, no, I got, it. I got to meet him. He played violin, really interesting, great character, uh, Hungarian American. And he was telling me about this trio that he had in the 30s that would um, play at these big supper clubs. And they played every night and they would do like five sets a night in the supper club. And he said, it was me and this guitar player. And I forget the guitar player's name. And someone else that played, I think it was bass and bongos, like depending. It was like just one of these like kind of cocktail trio sort of things. And I said, was there any amplification? And he said, no, there was no amplification. Took offense. And I said, I'm just surprised. How do people hear the guitar? And he said, he played a Gibson L5. This guy still remembered. It was a Gibson L5. And then he said, but also people were quieter. The world was quieter. Absolutely. And this I was wouldn't... someone who was like almost 90 at this time. That was really sort of eye-opening to me. I don't have proof that's true, but come on. I went to an acoustic jazz show a couple of days ago at a new venue. This is acoustic jazz in a little room for 20 people. It was so loud 
it hurt my ears. I had to move to the back of the room and it still hurt my ears. It's because we've become so desensitized and frankly, out of our minds. We've gone nuts as a species with volume. I think we as a, as a world have gone crazy and the beauty of the sound of acoustic instruments. Bluegrass is big around here in the, in the Bay Area. It, and right, it's, not, yeah. it's not just the Billy Strings explosion. It's just, and to see all these young people just wailing on the guitar and the mandolin and the violin, it's wonderful. It's all acoustic. And of course, it's changed. And David Grisman refers to himself as the, the he, I did a podcast with him a, a few weeks ago, and he again described himself as the man that ruined bluegrass. And it's coming right from him. And I, I say, you're the man that exploded, one of the people that exploded bluegrass around the world. That's just because at his core, he's a, a bluegrass mandolinist from Hackensack. That's that's what at the core of his music. I did get to see the original quintet at the Loeb Student Center, the original David Grissom quintet. I remember John Duffy from the Seldom Scene was there. In fact, it might have even been a double bill. Probably was with like Grisman and John Duffy. If you don't know who John Duffy is, I realized John Duffy was a great mandolin player and singer who was in this East Coast band called the Seldom Scene. And and so Grisman gets on the mic and was like. This song is for uh, John Duffy, who hates to hear the mandolin played like an electric guitar. And then he went into some like blues things, playing it very much like an electric guitar. Yeah, there was all this like controversy when Grisman kind of burst on the scene. I remember from some of the older people. But, you know, I was a little kid and I just I couldn't believe it completely. I just was crazy about that first record. I wore that thing out. It, it, it's an amazing thing. You know, I, I knew Grisman's music a little bit, but I, I had never even played with a mandolin player when I got the call to, to join his band. He was the first mandolinist that I've ever played with. It's been downhill since then. I, I think I was probably hired because of my gypsy jazz chops and ability to play rhythm, not being a bluegrasser. And I think Frank Vignola was my predecessor and him, him not. He, he says, Frank told me that his bluegrass sounds so bad that it it sounds like crabgrass. I've heard that line. I can't remember who that. I heard that attributed to, I think, uh, Frank Foster. That's who's, yeah, Frank Foster one night. Oh, that's where it comes like, from? I, I heard that it was like some guitar player was playing a gig with Frank Foster and, and Frank was like, what, what kind of music you play? And he said, oh, I play mostly bluegrass. And Frank Foster said, bluegrass? Sounds more like crabgrass to me. But yeah, I think I'm not surprised that Frank would use that. Frank would certainly know that whole scene. And Frank used to play also that same club that Frank Foster used to play at. So I saw on the interwebs that you were, I, you, maybe you've already done it or, or maybe you're going to do it. I, I camp with Brian Sutton. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so one time when I was playing with Dog Grisman at A Appalachia State and Brian Sutton was the opening act. And he was wonderful. He's just an incredible guitar player, super nice guy. He's very nice to me. Then afterward, as often happens, is what we call a cluster pluck. And the opening band, everybody plays. There's two bass players and everything. Dog called one of his, for the encore, he called one of his more bluegrass-oriented tunes. And so Brian holds his guitar up to the mic and basically reinvents bluegrass guitar right front of me it's just like, it's just like he's playing up high like king Vey momstein or paganini it's just like, oh my god and then dog gives me the nod so <laughs> and it's good for a guy to get slapped around a little bit but i will never forget that just like, he's so good at pulling tone and volume 
and everything else and beauty and melody out of a, a, a guitar just amazing brian's a very unusual person yeah he's he's a great guitar player he's a very thoughtful person who is about making music in a group whoever he's playing with he's making that person sound good he's really the whole complete package yeah that camp that he has is actually a great camp if anyone's looking to get into bluegrass guitar it's just fantastic i taught there this past june a few months ago it was fantastic and one of the best parts was everyone on staff was great and there were a bunch of people that are old friends who i hadn't seen in a while but they're also new people like a guitarist jake eddie that i'd never met before and one of the best parts about that camp is that when all sort of over at the end of each day, staff mostly retires to this little area far away from everybody. And, and pretty much every evening there was just some playing with Brian and whoever was around, just picking a few tunes before bed. And that was really incredibly inspiring. Really some of the nicest music making I've had in, in my life, quite honestly, like sitting around really close with other musicians playing acoustic guitars and pre-associating tunes and letting solos happen and just being completely one, not no one trying to cut anyone, but everyone's like making sure their tones matched and complemented the ensemble. It was really Painting beautiful. Ensemble. That, that's a great lesson for there's anybody out there listening, you, the, your job is to make the group sound good and not only to draw attention to yourself. And I noticed that in the gypsy jazz world or in maybe in the, the bebop world or something, it, it turns into a cutting contest sometimes. Although in the gypsy jazz community, there's also like that long tradition of apprenticeship. Angela DeMar had that with Chan Chu. That's a real tradition like that young players, young meaning they might still be children or even early teens, mid-teens, get tapped to be the accompanist for a master. And I don't know if, it, if there's any money that comes with the job, but you learn by doing that. The apprenticeship begins with a company. And I think that that is, that's also super important in bluegrass. And it's certainly in hot jazz and swing, the prime role of, of an acoustic guitarist especially before pickups, but even once the guitar got amplified, that's super important. And I know that for myself, the only reason I was able to eventually quit a day job in my early 30s and start working full-time was because of my rhythm playing. You know, there was so many, there were so many holes still in my playing. That's a great point. You know, the rhythm playing, I've been the hired. I think I've gotten so many gigs because of my ability to play rhythm. It, it comes first. And with the young guys, I think you teach them, they make, you make them, Accompany you. They teach them how to play rhythm. Learn the songs. Learn 20 songs. Learn how to play. Become a good rhythm player. Drive a band. And that will get you work. And that will let you in on the fun. Yeah. You can be an outsider until you learn 20 songs. And until you learn how to drive a band. And people say to me, what are you doing there? You comping? I said, no. I'm just doing like four on the floor rhythm. It's just I'm keeping a beat. But the rhythm at its core can be quite simple. That it doesn't have to be, it doesn't contain the upper partial of the chord. It's just the rhythm on three or four strings. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression before. Some people say rhythm on three strings or rhythm on four strings. I don't necessarily look at it like that, but I can see why some people say that. I do rhythm on two strings. That is really, that's what I do. I've got a style of acoustic rhythm playing that's probably pretty advanced, for lack of a better word. Like it's, it does have a lot of movement. But it's 
simple technically. Like, I don't think there's anything in the left hand or right hand that's difficult. That is wonderful and such a great lesson. If you're playing with a piano player and there's a bass player and there's a singer or you're singing, that's all you need. You don't need to do these full block chords that carry an awful lot of harmonic information. There's plenty of harmonic information, particularly against the bass. When you're doing that, it's all there. And if you're plugged in, if you're amplified at all, often the bass, the sixth string is a little too loud anyway. Fender amps tend to have that kind of juiced. And if you're playing a hollow body and you're going through a Fender amp, your sixth string might be really kind of boomy. So lose it. It is too boomy. And, and part of the problem is if, if my amplifier is too loud, I, I can't play good rhythm anymore. It's just, no. it, it's very inhibiting, but you need it to also be loud enough for the lead line. So getting that volume right, kids, I think it's a big piece. Of, it's a big part of the puzzle. I've never even actually talked about that with anyone yet. The other thing is, uh, I've I play rhythm. Often, I'll include a little bit of an upstroke, even if I'm doing straight fours. But I, it's not like the gypsy pump where it's like it's not like that. It's not like every single beat. And I probably did a little bit of it just without even thinking, but... I want to hear your rhythm style, just I know there's probably a variety of things mm -hmm. you might do. Let's hear it. So I'm thinking about, actually, I learned this wrong. There's a bunch of great records that were recorded in the late 50s, I think like 58, 57, 59, somewhere in there. Sorry, I don't know exactly when, for the Vanguard record label. And some were under Ruby Brass leadership and some were under Vic Dickinson's leadership. The ones under Vic, a uh, great trombone player from with the Basie band and worked with a lot of different people, are just some of my favorite small group swing records in the world. And on some of the sides, Freddie Green's playing rhythm. And on some, the great Steve Jordan is playing rhythm. Steve Jordan was a Washington, D.C. area-based acoustic swing guitarist who basically like hardly ever took solos and just did the Freddie Green thing. And he's playing with Papa Joe Jones on these sides. And you can hear the resultant sound is right a little with that do, da, ba, go do, do. And so I thought that was the hippest thing in the world. So 20 something years ago, I was like, wow, I'm going to try to get that into my planks. And I worked at it and worked at it. And I started doing it too much. And you have to realize I don't want to do it too much. It has to be just a spare ingredient that you can put in to elevate this feel of the whole texture of the group. Anyway, I finally got it. And years later, I was listening to these records after not having listened to them for maybe five years or something. And I was like, oh, I was wrong. <laughs> That's not at all what he was doing. What I was hearing was Papa Joe's brushes on the snare and Steve Jordan and the two of them interacting basically as one. They are so locked in on these sides. So what's he playing on the guitar, actually? That he's it's not playing really straight. The other thing is, I got to hear Bucky Pizzarelli a bunch, even from the time I was a kid. God, you're so lucky. I saw him at the at the Iridium. I saw him. I've seen John play a bunch of times. But Bucky is a um, beautiful rhythm player. Bucky was really great. And I think that seeped into my playing. And John is a friend and probably the greatest rhythm guitar player I've ever played with. John is, no, he is unbelievable. Which um, leads us to the elephant in the room. Matt, which is? Seven, seven string? You're going seven string? 
No, John's been really nice. He's offered several times to give me a lesson and loan me one, but it's really daunting. And he plays it so great. I'm not one of those, I don't know. I, I don't feel like I have it enough in me to learn that it's, yeah, it would be asking an awful lot of me. What what do you play with um, with Miss Russell? What do you play with Catherine Russell? For years, for about 20 years, my main electric was a 1940 ES-150, Charlie Christian 150. And that's what's on almost every track on her records if I'm playing amplified. If I'm playing unamplified, and there's a lot of that too on her records, um, I'm playing my 1930 L5. I actually have two 1930 L5, so 16-inch short scale and one is really good and one is just unbelievable they're from the same batch so their serial numbers are only a few apart they were siblings right made side by side on the same bench but one of them went to john d'angelico and got a refin and a new board and all this work done to it by d'angelico and the other one is the other one went back to the gibson factory and got a new neck in 1934 so they both were dot necks originally that are now block necks. That's been my main acoustic guitar really since 2002, probably. Do you know who Bruce Foreman is? Yes. I saw Bruce, who also we did a podcast with a couple of weeks ago, saw him at, at Keys Jazz Bistro, an incredible player and a wonderful, wonderful trio. He can hold down that guitar trio like no one. It is really something. And he's a wonderful person as well. But there was some noise from the blade pickup because he plays that old guitar that used to belong to Barney with the retrofitted um, blade pickup in there or Charlie Christian pickup, whatever you want to call it. But there was a bit of noise. And he told me he actually had a box, like a magic dingus box that, that took out the noise. I don't know if he was using it that night or it wasn't working or whatever, but there is noise from those pickups. Do you experience a problem with the noise from yours or is it fine, part of the sound? No. I do not have a problem with the noise. And the reason is, and this is just for your listeners, George, there are a couple of noise gate boxes that you can get, right? The decimator, I think, is the one that a lot of people swear by. I got one and it's, it's just a gate. So you're still gated. It's not that great. There is this guy, a Russian mad scientist outside LA. I think of course. In the valley. His name is Illich. I-L-I-T-C-H. I shouldn't even be telling the world about this. I was hipped to him by, by my friend Armand Hirsch, our mutual friend Julian Lodge also has gotten Illich's now and some guitars. I've had Illich make me this device in two guitars, both of which have those blade Christian, those blade pickups, the Charlie Christian pickups. So it's an antenna that he's come up with. It's a big antenna that is inside of the guitar. And it somehow does something in the signal that takes out that hum. He builds each one to order. You have to give him not only the specs of the pickup and the output of the pickup, but a recording of the type of hum. And then he will build you this thing. Getting it installed is a whole other thing. I don't even want to tell your listeners how to figure that out. Wow. If people are really serious about this, they will get in touch with me or they'll figure it out. But yeah, you then have to install this inside a guitar. It's not easy, but I had one installed maybe 10 years ago or more on my ES-150 and I got a little tiny switch put on so that I could take it in and out of the signal path. And honestly, I like the sound with it in even more than out. It gives us slight compression to the sound. 
and it gets rid of a little bit of the flintiness and it makes it a little more even across the spectrum. Illich, man, he's incredible. A couple of years ago, I got a guitar that has been my main electric for the last year that has changed my life. I, if, if people are not guitarists and they're listening to this, might be really incredibly boring. I'm in my late 50s, right? And I didn't think that something would come along like this that would change my life. But for years, ever since I was a teenager, I've been into that, into to, um, Hank Garland and early Tal Farlow and early Kenny Burrell. And they all played L5s with a Charlie Christian pickup. In fact, there's even a picture of West with an L5 with a Charlie Christian pickup. And at least Farlow, and I'm not sure about Burrell. Burrell might not have had one, but at least in the picture I've seen of Wes, certainly Hank Garland, there is a P90 at the bridge. A friend of mine took a lesson from me years ago. He's become a friend since and was online. And he asked me at the start of the lesson, hey, any any guitar you wish you had? And he kept pushing me about it. And finally, I was like, there's only one guitar I really wish I had. And it would be an L5 with a Charlie Christian and a P90 at the bridge. And he said, oh, I got one of those. And I was like, what? Because they were never a factory order. It was always like a special order. And you know, sure. I'd only seen in real life one in my life. And so during COVID, he called me up and was like, I'm selling this guitar. Do you want it? And I had no money. I'd had the worst year. But we worked out a deal and he let me take a little time and sell some things. And he sent it to me on approval. And it's incredible. And it's changed my life. It's a 1957 L5 CES electric Spanish with a cutaway and it has a Charlie Christian at the neck and an Alnico five at the bridge. And it is just a fabulous instrument. Well, are so, you using the Alnico five? Are you putting the yeah. pickups together? You're putting them yeah. together or I mean, especially for like Western swing stuff or blues stuff. Like I can play like blues telecaster gigs, whatever on this guitar. It's amazing. This blonde L5, the 49 that I showed you is fantastic with that dearmament for rhythm for an acoustic jazz thing the dearmament actually lets a lot of the acoustic quality through i've done hot club gigs with it as as long as it as it's low volume it sounds fabulous right but the christian and the alnico five oh my god it's thrilling to play because oh i gotta hear this thing oh, oh it's fantastic the 150 as great as that guitar is as soon as you get your volume up past a certain point, a lot of mud can come into the signal and you don't necessarily get a warmer treble and you get a lot of bass and a lot of mud. And that has to do with the guitar itself, right? It's got a flat back, but I think it has a lot to do with the mahogany neck and the short scale. So with an L5, you've got a maple neck, you've got a long scale. And it's going to be brighter, be brighter right? It's brighter. It's more defined. You can crank the volume and you don't get this mud. It just gets like clearer. It has like beautiful overtones and a tight, compact sound all the way down to the bottom. It's a great guitar. And it has at this very advanced stage in my life, I can't believe it. But it has changed my life. And as far as arch top guitars go, man, I am really really not looking for anything. I have this great 49. I have my 47 or 48 L7. I've got two 1930 L5s. I've got my my L5 CES with the Christian and the Alnico 5. 
And I've also, I've got a few other things. I've got a ES330, 1960 ES330, or that's a great guitar. So I'm really set. I've had a lot of guitars over the years. It's what my grandmother used to call long threatening comes at last. It took a long time, many decades to kind of get what I have right now. But I have to ask you before we go about Catherine Russell. I'm such a fan. The most, what a beautiful voice. How did she discover you? How did you guys meet or? Yeah, Catherine's great. And I've been working with her now for like 15 years or longer. Catherine first. All right. I don't think she likes me telling the story. I'll tell it really quickly. An ex of mine told me, who's a great musician, told me that she was going out uh, 18 years ago, 17 years ago, something. She was like, I'm going out to hear my friend, Catherine Russell. And I asked who that was and she described her. And I was like, wait, she plays mandolin? She said, yeah. And I was like, and she, she played bluegrass mandolin? She said, yeah, because she gave me her whole history. She'd known her for years. And she was like, Catherine is the best singer you've ever heard in your life. She's the best singer you'll ever hear. And I was like, she plays mandolin. She's the best singer I ever hear. And I was like, and you said she's black? And I was like, is she short? And she was like, yeah, she's really short. And I said, then it has to be this woman that I heard when I was like 16 or 17. I think I was 17 at the Berkshire Mountain Bluegrass Festival, a place I also got to see Dog and all these people as a kid. And I was like, it has to be her. This woman amazed me. She was just a parking lot picking session, right? I had my banjo and this woman is suddenly there singing like Golden Road tunes and playing the mandolin. And I was floored by her voice. She stayed with me for decades because her musical delivery was so compelling. So anyway, wow. So Rochelle, my ex tells me this thing and I'm like, it has to be this woman. So about a year and a half, two years later, Catherine calls me for her gig and she just put out her first solo record at the age of 50, which is amazing. She put out this great record and she saw me play with Rochelle. She also saw me play with this violinist, Jenny Scheinman, and her husband, who was also, who's her manager, a great guy named Paul Kahn, who's really important, essential part of Catherine's uh, operation, but also someone that I'm very fond of. Paul saw me play with Andy Stein, a violinist, who somehow they saw me play and they called me up. Anyway, I got to start playing with Catherine and we hit it off great musically and got to be friends over a year or so. And about a year into it, I told her this story and I don't, I'm not sure she even believes me even now, but I'm telling you it's the truth. And, and in the last 15 years working with her, it, it's one of those things in my life that I'm grateful for all the time. She is a spectacular boss. She is the consummate pros pro she takes care of all her stuff so well. This woman, she has perfect pitch. She's a fabulous musician. One time I played an intro for her in E flat and she gave me a weird little look and came in D because she knew I played it in the wrong key. This woman is amazing and she is patient, perhaps to a fault with all of us. She's just a great person and a great band leader and uh, getting to travel with her and make music with her. All these records and all these tours later is still 
That is just so something I'm so incredibly great. grateful for. So great to hear. And I did not know that she was a bluegrass mandolinist. She keeps it that. on the DL. I don't think she wants people to know. Make sure no one hears this podcast. <laughs> okay, nobody will hear it. But you can hear that in her singing that she's a musician. She's not a chick singer. She's a musician. She's there in the music and ha- has all that going for oh, her. She's, un- she's unbelievable. She's not just like a musician. She's also one of these people like, the people in the Wretched Refuse string band that I was talking about with Statman and Trishka et al. and Schulberg. She's someone who really embraces the whole history of American 20th century music. She's sung so much rock and pop music. She's sung so much blues. She's played country and string band music and jazz. In her band, any performance can go any number of different directions. And, and it's all okay as long as you know, fuck up as long as you're still playing music. Matt, thank you so much for this, for this opportunity to speak. Oh, to thank you. you. Thank you. It's been really fun. This is George Cole with our show wrap-up. I'd like to thank Source Network Production with executive producer Mark Miller and production support from Pokey Huang. Also on this send, tech support from Sheila Swift. Signing off, and we'll see you next time on the Hot Jazz Network podcast. Hot Jazz Network.